that football poop is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about sling and stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Bill Belichick's time as the head coach and de facto GM of the New England Patriots may be done, but at least his legacy will live on in the intro to this show and, you know, maybe in the NFL as well. Uh, We're going to talk about Belichick, the Patriots, his legacy, as well as the Pete Carroll firing, the Mike Vrabel firing. Some of the biggest names in coaching are on the open market and have been fairly unceremoniously dumped by their NFL teams. And, of course, later in the show, the boo-boo breakdown, getting an injury take on some of the biggest uh, key players heading into Super Wildcard Weekend. In order to do that, we got to welcome back our guy, Brad Spielberger, to the show. How is it going, Bradley? Going fantastic, Samuel. How you doing? Not bad. Not bad at all. Um, so I want to start with Bill Belichick um, and, and get into that. But before we do that, we've got to talk about insuring uh, uh, your life. If you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make at the start of the new year. It's a perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else this year has in store for you. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies to fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash pff nfl policies issued by western southern life insurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions at some point i'm going to figure out a way of actually transitioning into that that doesn't sound like a car crash um but here we are so new england patriots and bill belichick uh i guess let's start with what does Bill Belichick's legacy end up being if this is it? Let's forget about where he might go next and, you know, if he's going to coach for another five, ten, two years, whatever. Um, this is the end. The, the dynasty is now officially over in New England. Every part of it except for Robert Kraft has now departed. The quarterback's gone. The coach is gone. We're moving in a new direction. We have a succession plan, which we'll get to. But now, what does Bill Belichick's legacy look like given the way this thing is unraveled towards the end? It doesn't help, uh, for sure. You're gonna you're gonna have trouble finding anyone who's a bigger Bill, or a, yeah, bigger Bill Belichick fan than myself. I think the notion and idea that he was lifted and carried by Tom Brady is one of the more preposterous uh, <laughs> ideas in the history of professional organized sports. Tom Brady was not even very good for the first Super Bowl. Uh, the defenses have been elite every step of the way, even this year. Talent-wise, on on paper, I don't know, bottom 10 uh, roster on defense, especially once you lose Christian Gonzalez and Matthew Judon, and they still were phenomenal on defense for pretty much the entire year. Um, So, yeah, to me, it it doesn't help, for sure, but it doesn't tarnish the legacy. He is both the greatest coach and the greatest personnel person in the history of this sport, 
uh, and it'll take a lot for me to think otherwise. Maybe Ozzie Newsom can challenge him uh, in the personnel part of it. But coaching, uh, I think it is not even a debate. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think <laughs> I, everything has gone badly for Bill Belichick's legacy since Tom Brady departed. You know, everyone sort of treated that as, oh, this is great. Now we get some A-B testing of, wh- of who was most important. And Brady goes and wins the Super Bowl immediately somewhere else. And Belichick has sort of presided over the steady decline of the New England Patriots to the point where they're now moving in a different direction and saying, thanks, Bill, but your time is done. We no longer even have the confidence that you're the guy to piece this back together. So from that perspective... It, it looks bad for Belichick, and you get people now bringing up what his career win-loss record looks like minus Tom Brady, and that also looks bad for Belichick. But as with all these discussions, it obviously, it's never that simple, and it always loses an awful lot of nuance and information when you simply look at it in black and white terms. You're right. You have to remember that Tom Brady was not particularly good at the start of his Patriots career. Now, he tended to be clutch, and that was an important part of it. And they, you know, he made just enough big plays at the, the big times. But you're right, that was a team that was carried by the defense, of which Bill Belichick was in charge. It's also probably worth pointing out that if Brady was able to go from not very good to the best quarterback in the NFL, which he was for multiple stretches or multiple seasons, You have to think Belichick was a part of that, and not just by, you know, implication, but we do have stories from all sorts of people of, you know, Belichick would be in on the tape sessions with Tom Brady, and he was a part of the learning process. Sure, he ran the defense, but it's not like he just left Tom Brady to the offensive coaches and that was it. Like, he was part of his development. So I think you have to give Belichick some credit for the player that Tom Brady became, as opposed to, well, he made one call, he went with Brady over Bledsoe, and then he got lucky, you know, and then he just stumbled into the greatest quarterback of all time. I think you have to assume that he played at least some part in building the greatest quarterback of all time, which has to play into his legacy in addition to being, you know, I think clearly the best defensive coach of all time. And I think you can bolster that with other situations where he clearly, he backs up, he always talks about he likes guys learning on both sides of the football and like Brian Dable was a defensive coach before going on offense and again like Joe Judge and Matt Patricia and eh, maybe it didn't work out too well but like right. he clearly is very keen on cross training and learning the game backwards and all these different things I mean this is a random tangent but like you know Bobby Sloak's now an OC his dad was a defensive coordinator forever he was coaching on defense in Washington on the infamous 2013 staff like I think Belichick has always put a lot of emphasis and value in that and so it certainly does help the development. And look, like I'm not, I'm not saying he's impervious to criticism. And that I, people are allowed to say whatever they want. He went 11 and five with Matt Castle. He made the playoffs with a rookie Mac Jones, who Mac Jones now looks like an unplayable, like non NFL quarterback. And again, we could probably blame Bill for for the lack of development if you want. But and the biggest thing is there have been draft misses, no question about it. it has not been good enough recently. But the, to sustain, I think it's the last piece. Like even if you have an elite quarterback. To sustain a dynasty for as long as they did, ignoring rings, just look at making the playoffs or winning your division or making the AFC Championship game, what was it, eight years in a row? The amount of tough decisions they made to trade players away or let players walk in free agency and find replacements and and cycle through it. He changes his defense. They were running man coverage the highest rate in the league. They didn't have the personnel for it anymore. He pivoted. He's always changing and adapting. My favorite quote of all time, this is back in like the early 2000s, I think, there were someone asked him like, "Why are you now running a four-three instead of a three-four? 
He said, when I started running the 3-4, it was us, the Steelers, and the Raiders. Nobody else ran the 3-4. So when you got to the draft, there were a ton of outside linebackers, and there were a lot of zero one-tech nose tackles available. But now everyone runs a 3-4. So I'm running the 4-3 because now it's easier to find 4-3 defensive ends and 3-techs, whatever. Like, he made the, the difficult sound so simple and just always was zigging and zagging, doing all these different things that I know that sounds like it's not a hard thing to do. Yeah, well, people don't do it. So right. clearly it is hard to do because a lot of coaches cannot do these things. So anyway, I, I, I worship the guy. I think that's obvious. Yeah, I mean, in, in what is termed a copycat league, Belichick specifically went out of his way not to copy things, right? Went out of his way to, in fact, do the opposite because there's an edge there. Because if you're the one team doing something that nobody else is doing, you have that, you have that increased pool. Like nobody's looking for these players. So I can get them. I know what I can do. I can put them in roles to succeed. I don't have to ask them to do the, to do the things they can't do. And we end up better because of it. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely a huge part of his legacy. Um, it's always a really difficult thing when you get to the end of a sort of legends tenure, wherever it is, right? The divorce is always kind of messy. And it's like, it's difficult to find an exact comp for the Belichick one because a lot of times it reaches a stage where it's clearly done. Like the coach has lost something. You know, it's not working the way it used to. I mean, any sort of soccer fans, Arsene Wenger, you know, towards the end of his Arsenal career, it's like it wasn't working anymore. And sure, he was good enough to get them to the Champions League maybe, but he was never going to win a title again. So eventually they had to go, okay, it's time, right? We need to move on from this legend. But Belichick still has teeth. I mean, his defense is still nasty. Like, that part of it is still amazing. It's just the offense has stopped functioning. And part of that is there's no quarterback. Um, so it's not as simple as, well, he clearly just doesn't have it anymore. He does. And maybe he doesn't have all of it. Maybe he's lost bits and pieces. But it's not like Bill, Bill Belichick stinks as a coach now. And yet Robert Kraft has reached this point where he's like, I'm, I'm going in a different direction. So the next thing I want to talk about, and this is going to come up a couple of times in this show, why couldn't or didn't they trade him? So Kraft addressed it, and he basically said, someone who's worked with us for 20 years, I felt the same way about Tom Brady as I do about Bill. I, I just feel like it's not fair. They should be able to dictate the terms of their future, decide where they want to go, um, and, and I respect that. I also do think at the same time, because I think it happened with Rabel as well, yeah. I think these coaches also recognize, like, I'm not going to let you hamstring my new team and take away top-end draft capital because for both guys, I assume the Sean Payton compensation or in that ballpark is probably what you're looking at there. So, you know, first and second round pick. And so they also might say, I'll cause problems or, or, or not go or tell them I'm not interested and like stuff like that. So I do think Kraft is being genuine. I'm not saying it's all, you know, we don't have to be cynical. I think it is real. And he probably just says, you know what? It, it, it's end of the road for us because he also, you just touched on, even said, I, I did. They, someone asked him, "Did you explore taking away power and just making Bill, you know?" And he said, "No, I didn't. I, I don't think it would work that way. It would just be too complicated. Yeah. It's been going this way for 25 years. How can I say, okay, now some 35-year-old kid is going to tell you who you should draft, and you should just? I just expect you to be okay with that, like." So I do. I, I think at a high level, Kraft just says, "You know, what? I have too much respect for them. Let him go where he wants to go." dictate the terms of that decision and not have to deal with draft compensation, all that. I think it's kind of the same situation that happened in Tennessee. A mutual respect, it didn't work, but, but you know. And I get why fans can be frustrated. Oh, we could have gotten this cap. Yeah. True, yes, but uh, Belichick is above that. But it does kind of make, but you would have thought Sean Payton was above that, and yet 
they were able to make that work. Now, did they just like see the new owners coming and were like, <laughs> I mean, we can fleece them out of some draft picks? Or like, why did Sean Payton not get that respect? And so I think not, not a lack of respect, but you know, he stepped away for a year, right? So, so yeah. he truly did the thing where he said, I'm just going to stop coaching. Um, the year, year tolls on his contract, you know, kind of goes through it. It helped get a, you know, an extension from Denver, all these things. And also, like, I'm not saying Bill doesn't love New England, but I, I'm sure saw Sean. To a degree, was like, yeah, I want to help my old team out a little bit, give them some extra juice on the way out the door. But I think that's the big thing is he he chose to stop coaching that team. If Bill doesn't get fired, he's not he's showing up week one next year and, and coaching his team, right? Yeah. So I think that is the biggest difference. Is Sean said, I'm done here. I've done all I can here. This team, whether they under recognize it or not, they don't. This team is cooked. They're not going to be good for for the foreseeable future. They've now missed the playoffs. You know, obviously two years in a row since he said that and, and did that, and they probably will for a couple more years going forward. So that that I think is the difference. It just it's sort of fascinating to me that you know we hear all the time that the NFL is a business. It's ruthless and you know all this kind of stuff, and yet. You get situations like this where multiple teams are clearly leaving something on the table out of respect. And they do it sometimes as well. Like, you know, when they, they sort of do players a favor by letting them hit the market early when they, they don't need to, that kind of thing. But this is like, I mean, this is a different level. Like, you could get something pretty significant back for Bill Belichick, I would have imagined, or Mike Vrabel once you have determined we are going in a different direction. It's just kind of crazy to me that now is the time where you go, actually, no, there is room for sentimentality in all this. There is room for feelings. And, you know, we don't have to be business, ruthless the whole way. Only when we're dealing with players. Like, screw those guys. The coaches, though, yeah, they, they've earned it. They've earned the respect of their own terms. <laughs> Just, I don't know, it's a bizarre dichotomy to me. I don't quite understand why now is when we, we draw the line. Totally 110% fair, and the treatment of players is definitely not on the same level. They're not viewed in the same light, and, and it's, you know, un unfortunate. With Tennessee, though, I will say uh, twofold. First, I think they could have traded Derrick Henry at the trade deadline. I think they chose not to out of respect for him, let him finish his career there. I mean, they handed a guy a microphone, and he was talking, give, you know, giving a sermon yeah. for five minutes. It was cool. Like, you don't see that that often, and I think that really meant a lot and mattered in Tennessee they're the one where I would more so. Obviously, Belichick is Belichick, but Vrabel's, what, 30 years younger than Bill Belichick. Um, probably would have gone for a really substantial, I, I think, compensation package. I know it hasn't been good for two years, but a, clearly a phenomenal coach. Um, was great for four years before that. And also, though, more so, like, there has been friction since before the season. So you're them saying, oh, we don't want to waste time, right. not get our candidate. Then you should have been having conversations about this in November. And second fold, I do want to say this. Teams say that, and I get it. And we're not in the, you know, I'm not helping these these coaches, these teams hire coaches and GMs. Not a single team interviewed Mike McDaniel. He was the last guy hired in his cycle, and he is by far the best coach of the cycle. You're not good at it. Like if you miss two <laughs> weeks and have to talk to some, maybe you miss out on some coaches. There's no evidence that you're gonna do you're gonna do a worse job because. The hiring process, you hire some search firm who tells you to hire their buddies, collects a paycheck, and that guy gets fired in two years. Like, let's, let's, let's be for real. <laughs> um, so the last part of the New England thing we, want, we need to talk about is this succession plan that they apparently have had in place. Um, they, there was talk, obviously, some connections of, well, Vrabel's available. Does Mike Vrabel come in and take over from Bill Belichick? And then it emerged that... Gerard Mayo, who has been the player that's, or the, the former player, the, the coach who's been talked about for a fairly serious amount of time as being an eventual successor to Bill Belichick, isn't just the guy they're going with officially now, but 
it's been actually contractual for a while. They've had it written into his contract that he is going to be the succession plan, and it's now it's done. It's anointed. He's been the guy. They haven't pivoted. They didn't you know go in a different direction when Vrabel was available. They're sticking with the game plan, which was to install Gerard Mayo as Bill Bel- Bill Belichick's heir apparent and and successor. Um, what do you make of that? First of all, the sort of the codifying of the process, and then let's talk a little bit about what to expect from Mayo. This is really fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I was not aware that this was something you could do. It has happened before. Jim Mora, and there's another recent example. By recent, I mean like within the last 30 years. Definitely not recent. Caldwell? Recent. There is some speculation that, that Josh McDaniels may have had this in his contract as well. After he backed out from the Colts, then maybe this was part of his language there, um, which I also just quick aside, I, that would have been fascinating if a guy who'd failed as a head coach once, let's say the Raiders thing doesn't happen, I mean, obviously failed twice, but guy that failed in Denver, not a single player has a nice thing to say about him, comes mm. back, the offense looks like it does the last couple of years, and then he just gets handed the job and they avoid the Rooney rule, that would have been interesting. Um, but I think it, to a degree, there's a, I, I like the mechanism because Gerard Mayo probably would have been hired as a head coach elsewhere in the last couple of years. He's viewed as a phenomenal candidate the last couple of years. Um, and it, it helps teams have stability, pass the torch to a very good, very qualified coach. Um, so I think that piece is interesting because as we're talking about, the defense still has been awesome throughout this entire tenure, even at linebackers specifically, if you want to look at that, what they've been getting out of, you know, Jelani Tavai and, and all these pieces that did not work elsewhere that come there, they find a role for them and they make it work. I, I'm assuming Gerard Mayo has a huge part of, of that working. So. It is fascinating, though. I, I do wonder at a certain point if, you know, like it, it's a loophole around the Rooney rule that, that could cause potential problems, I guess, in theory. Um, but in this situation, I, I think it's it's a good application. And, and I think he is deserving. Um, and, and my, my piece and a question to pose to you is, do we think he will also have the same structure and setup as Belichick where he's like, in, in charge of personnel, or, or are they going to change that? That That's what I don't know and I find fascinating. Yeah, you, you tweeted that out earlier, and I, I, I think that's a really interesting aspect of it. Obviously, Bill Belichick was like the czar of the building. He ran everything, right? Now you're asking a guy in Gerard Mayo who is 37 years old and his highest sort of position up until this point has been like inside linebackers coach, right? You're now, now okay, they've been grooming him for this for a while, so it's not like... You know, it's not like just plucking any random inside linebackers coach and saying, hey, congratulations, you're now running the building. Um, so there, there's some sort of transition there. But giving a guy like that his sort of first job running a team, giving him total control, which, remember, is the thing that has scuppered like what seemed like amazing coaching candidates with previous experience of like head coaching gigs. I mean, you know, several of these big name guys have completely run aground because of theoretically the the total control, the personnel side as well as the head coaching side. Giving him total control of the entire organization would seem wild to me as like a first experience at the job. I it seems crazy if they haven't got now maybe you know, I don't know if, if Ernie Adams or whatever is gonna take that side and we say, hey, Generally, they've been working together, but Bill, you know, had final say. Now it's going to be more of an even split, and but we keep the sort of same people involved. Or if he is just going to get given total control over this thing, I think that would be kind of fascinating. Yeah, and the thing there that so they certainly have been grooming him, and I think the interesting thing there too is going back to McDaniel's when he did return. There was a whole conversation of like 
Bill's going to give me more insight into his process. He's like, I think contractually agreed to like, tell me more about what he does, get the secret sauce, so to speak. And so I'm guessing there's a possibility that Belichick has also been sharing with Gerard Mayo, like, you know, right. all the little intricacies and things he does. Um, and, and yeah, his trade secrets, so to speak. So it is kind of funny yeah, in a vacuum, just be like, all right, we're well, going from inside linebackers coach to head coach. You haven't called plays because I, I think Steve Belichick was calling plays on defense. That's also fascinating. Do you keep Steve on Steve Belichick on your staff? Like, I think he's been solid. You know, if he's calling plays, well, the anyway, whole, yeah, you, you obviously have a thought. So yeah, I mean, there. so there's that. The whole element of you know, we we look at this coaching cycle. You know, like, well, who's the the best coordinator with the best scheme or the guy that's got experience play call? Like, Mayo has zero of the sort of traditional like uh, credentials, if you like, of a head coaching candidate. There's never been a coordinator on either side of the ball, hasn't called plays, you know, has done none of the things that all these other guys are sort of pitching as the reason they should get the job. But from, from a long time previously, it's been like, no, Mayo is going to be the guy, which essentially is, it's like advertising directly, overtly, that at least a majority of the job description of being head coach, at least in the opinion of the Patriots, is none of the crap that everybody else is searching for, right? <laughs> like, and given that they just had Bill Belichick, maybe they know more than you do. And actually just chasing the best coordinator is an idiotic way of approaching this. And we should be looking for different skill sets entirely when we come to, to hiring head coaches. Um, the other thing that, that jumped out to me, so I'm very torn on just the process. Like forget the contractual part, but the idea of, anointing a successor essentially right and almost predetermining this for a while on the one hand that feels like a very smart you know forward thinking uh, well organized way of doing it like let's let's think about the future let's have an organized succession process let's you know an orderly transition of power this is how the world works or should work right on the other hand the couple of times you can think of of people doing it previously, it hasn't gone well. I mean, you mentioned Jim Mara taking over from Mike Holmgren in Seattle. That was a disaster. The other one I can think of was Jim Caldwell taking over from Tony Dungy, right, in, in Indianapolis. Now, maybe that went better than people actually gave it credit for, and for some reason Caldwell always just seems to get the crappy end of the stick when it comes to yeah. how well he's done in the NFL. But minimum you would say neither of those two instances was a rousing success and we didn't just you know keep the thing going the train kept on the tracks um now it's two times right is that just circumstantial is that just uh anecdotal it crapped out the last two times but it doesn't mean it's a bad idea or does it mean that hey you know you probably shouldn't just preordain a guy the next G the next head coach you actually should go looking and try and find the best candidate yeah, I, th I think the, the two angles there are interesting. First, like, should we put a lot of stock in the traditional way of going about it when the average coach tenure is like three years? Right. Like, maybe not. Um, you know, again, not saying that it automatically means that the different approach would be good. Um, but the second piece, too, though, I, I really do think, look, I, we'd probably agree. I, I know it's the, the kind of uh, consensus opinion of the hashtag analytics community or whatever, that you want your head coach to be a great offensive play calling head coach. Um, because, you know, again, what we talk about, if he, he helps the quarterback, he's not going to leave. Whereas look at Mike Vrabel, for example, you lose Mike LaFle uh, Matt LaFleur, you lose Arthur Smith, and then, you know, your offense kind of flounders, not just because of that, but, um, you know, like, that's always kind of the, the, the horror story we tell as to why in an ideal world, like Andy Reid is like the prototypical ideal 
there are plenty of guys that are phenomenal CEOs and leaders of men and guys that can run a building and, and keep people online and all those things. You know, John Harbaugh hasn't called plays on either side of the ball in a very long time. And, you know, we can go through. Bill Belichick hasn't either. So I, I do think sometimes we put too much stock in the status quo when, you know, 25 teams are looking for a new coach every three years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's pivot to uh, to the Mike Vrabel thing for a moment. Um, so I, we, we touch on this again, but I, again, I'm struck by the idea that this thing eventually went to the point of divorce. And again, they didn't trade him. Like Mike Vrabel has been one of the best coaches in the NFL over the last several years. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of different sort of data points that would back that up. And they were like, no, we've decided it's, it's the time to get rid of you. And unlike the Belichick one where it's like, okay, this is – 20 plus years of history you know we had some great times we love you we're all friends here however true or not that is you know you've earned this with Vrabel it's kind of like the ownership feels like they're getting pissed off with him and we we maybe equally on the other side like it, it seems a little bit more acrimonious and yet they still went no we're not going to trade him we'll just let him let him leave it really is fascinating because the way in which you went about winning, too, where, like, we're talking about, you know, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, but even ignoring that, like, he got the most out of his talent over that four-year stretch. I think it the most from, you know, the first four years of his tenure. I think his win percentage compared to the talent on his roster, he was number one in the NFL. <laughs> like, a one seed in the NFC, in the AFC when the AFC was an absolute gauntlet. He, what, what, didn't he? like, went into – he was, like, they won, like, at Buffalo – I think they lost at Kansas City, but it was like a one-score game. There was a stretch of like they won, they won five games in a row against the best teams in the AFC and I think lost a nail-biter at Kansas City. You make an AFC championship game one year, and yeah, with, with a guy you traded a fourth-round pick for and Ryan Tannehill as your quarterback with all these patchwork things, they're like on paper we always would not view their team to be as good as they were. Um, and obviously it comes back to coaching. I think he is a good in-game manager uh, you know, relative to the rest of the league. Like, you know, the, a lot of Belichick ties here. The infamous, you know, like like forcing the clock to run when you're screwing around with delayed pen, uh, or uh, canceled, what am I saying, declined penalties, right. all, all those things like that. Like, but, but, but what I'm trying to say, though, is like he is a culture builder and a floor raiser and a guy that clearly can win without having elite talent or things of that nature. So, like, that's the guy you'd think would be a trade candidate for sure, as opposed to if you wanted to poke holes and be like, this guy wins because he has a scheme that's perfect for where he's at or because he has an elite quarterback, but like, we're not totally sure if it'll translate. Well, I have no doubt in saying Mike, Mike Vrabel shows up somewhere and he's going to win you seven plus games unless I mean, the team this year was probably one of the worst teams in the entire league on paper. And they still won some games against some good teams. So it is, it is weird. It is very, very weird because the last piece, like you said, it's been acrimonious for a while now. Like I, it, there's been chatter that that he has been his feathers have been ruffled since before the season that yeah. they had a disagreement on do we run it back do we try to tear things down and start over everyone's been talking about it it's been the biggest it's been the worst kept secret in the NFL since February of 2022 and they didn't you know even try to get trade co compensation it, it's a fair point and I think clearly the biggest failings of the Titans in the last couple of years have been personnel like it's not been. Uh, this guy's just turned into a crappy coach and he's losing games he should win. It's like this team has the worst offensive line in the league two years in a row. We've already fired one GM for making an absolute, like, you know, for the, for the shambles of, of personnel decisions and player selection and stuff. We've got another one in. I mean, the reports that were – there's an athletic article. I do think – so I don't know if you have an athletic subscription or not or for any of the listeners do, but 
One of my favorite aspects of The Athletic right now is every time there is a you know, major organizational shift, i.e. somebody gets fired, there's like a postmortem in The Athletic, right? Like whoever is the beat writer for that guy plus the national writer. Plus, anyway, they get together and there's a giant, here's where it went wrong, right? And a huge sort of expose of the entire organization and documenting all the inter-office politics that went down and eventually led to some guy getting fired. Um, and it's across every sport. It's amazing. So there's one for uh, the Titans by Diana Rossini and Joe Rexroad. Uh, let's say that's how his name is pronounced. Um, and they broke down kind of where this whole thing went wrong. And to me, it's a fascinating documentation of Rabel's complete and total failure to manage up, right? Like he just sequentially pissed off the owner by not being obsequious enough and being like, you know, yes, owner, here's what, like, you know what I mean? He just like went, if I'm doing a good job that speaks for itself, why do I need to entertain the rest of this crap? Like, just keep on trucking. And apparently that, that doesn't fly with billionaires, right? You have, to, you have to go out of your way to inform and, you know, engage the billionaire. And if you don't, eventually they go, oh, I'm getting rid of this guy. This guy's a pain in the ass. Yeah, it seems to be that, that way. And, and I, the interesting thing, too, is, you know, obviously part of this is personnel control, and it comes back to that. Yeah. And I guess I'll kind of, like, counter myself. I don't know how much control he had during the John Robinson era. Not Maybe enough. He had a lot. But just look from 2020 to 2022, their top 100 draft picks. There's no chance anyone's is worse than this. <laughs> 2020, Isaiah Wilson, first-round tackle, never played. Yeah. Uh, Christian Fulton, maybe might be the best pick. Uh, I guess Roger McCreary will get that anyway. Christian Fulton, Darrington Evans, uh, uh, you know, a uh, 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 decent running back, RB3, RB4. Then you have Caleb Farley, does not play. Dylan Radens does not play on the worst offensive line in football. Monty Rice at linebacker, decent. Elijah Molden, slot corner, safety, sort of plays, whatever. And then Traylon Burks, Roger McCreary, good pick. Uh, Nicholas petit Frere got suspended for gambling, played a little bit whatever. And then Malik Willis, a quarterback, like that's 12 picks over three years where you got almost nothing. Like you got a, a pretty good corner in Roger McCreary out of 12 top hundred picks over three years. How much of that is Rabel's fault or not? But we talk about it was good in the beginning and it's fallen apart. There's why it fell apart. You wasted yeah. three draft classes. <laughs> no, I mean, it's been a complete and total personnel failing. And several steps along the way, it sounds like Vrabel was against the personnel decisions that were being made. So, like, if that's what's been annoying you, it sounds like he was right most of the time. Like, in addition to being one of the best, like, in-game head coaches in the NFL. So, he's definitely one of the best in-game head coaches out there. Like, you can see the proof on the field. And every time he objected to some, like, uh, or got into an argument with somebody on personnel calls, he looks like he was right. Maybe you should give him more control instead of saying, actually, no, Vrabel, sit back in your box, do your job. We've got the rest covered because you haven't so far, right? You've made a mess of it, and he's actually been doing a pretty good job uh, despite you ignoring him. Um, but then there's also like pieces. Uh, my favorite element, I think, was when apparently Vrabel went to the, the Patriots Ring of Honor ceremony, you know, where he's honored and blah, blah, blah. And he gave a little speech where he basically was like, um, you know, this is an amazing organization, you know, won X Super Bowls, blah, blah, blah. You know, never take that for granted. Not every organization is the same, right? And to Titans ownership, effectively, that was interpreted as, oh, you're taking shots at our organization? We're not, we're not as good as the Patriots? I see how it is. And like at that point, it like relationships dead. You know, the owner is now upset and you're done. It's just a matter of when that was your moment where you soured this thing. You poisoned this relationship beyond saving 
was just being a little bit um, a little bit too loose with your wording on a random, you know, address to people. Like you just didn't quite think through the implications of what you were saying. And that's like game over. I, that's fascinating to me. It's like we're in this multi-billion dollar enterprise where even a guy clearly, like demonstrably doing a very good job can immediately just poison his entire relationship with like one loose turn of phrase that he probably didn't even mean. You know, it was just like, you know, it was a special organization. I mean, they're, they're literally the greatest dynasty the game's ever seen. And all he's trying to do is say that to the fans. And like the new owner is like, oh, I see how it is. Right. That's it. You're dead to me. Like, yeah, you're on my enemies list. I think it, there was, uh, I don't know if it was in Dana's article or not, but apparently he got asked by reporters. I may have seen a tweet afterwards. Like, they asked him about that. And he yeah. was like, yeah, I mean, like, no one has won. The, right. Like, it was a very innocuous comment that it's the greatest dynasty in the history of professional sports, which it was. Like, and maybe, you know, maybe he also was taking a little dig, but it's very possible he was not at all. I just think he just didn't appreciate the gravity of what that could mean, right? Like, he's just like, well, I mean, it's true. What, what are we doing here? And actually, their point was like, do you understand that you may have pissed off the billionaire owner that controls all of this? And he didn't, I don't think, at that, that point. And then, you know, ultimately, uh, that's what cost him. There was a line in this, I think, that was really interesting. Uh, I forget where it was, um, where he effectively was like, you know, Vrabel just, uh, here we go. Vrabel did not address any of this with Carthon or Strunk, the owner and the GM. Um, the lack of communication increased the tension between them, though the relationship between Vrabel and Carthon remained amicable. Those close to Vrabel said the head coach's approach to it all was, why do I need to address inaccurate information or false reports? So Vrabel is essentially just like, look, if it's, if it's bullshit, why would I even engage with it? Whereas the bullshit was like, festering behind the scenes you know and, and you do need to engage with it not because it's valid but because the people in charge of the building are engaging with it and if you're not dealing with the same information they are you are just creating a wedge between you and ownership that ultimately ends up where it ends up which is hey it's not your fault but we've decided we're moving in a different direction anyway see ya it's just this fascinating like the way the world works which is exactly the same as like inter-office politics in any random ass job anywhere. And I guess the last piece, at the end of the day, we always love to try to figure out who did what and said what and all that. And I'm not saying Amy Adams Strunk is doing this, but like at the end of the day, sometimes these are 32 fantasy football teams. Yeah. Yeah, they hire a bunch of people. They pay them a whole lot of money. And for all you know, they're making every single draft pick based on the football they watched on Saturday at the bar. I'm not saying that's what happened here or anywhere, but you don't know. It could very well be the, be the way things go down. <laughs> um, okay, before we get into, we've got a little bit of breaking news, but also uh, one more major move that happened with the Seahawks and Pete Carroll. We've got to tell you about a sponsor of this podcast and prize picks. And more importantly, we have to tell you about Eli's prize picks uh, attempt at winning a flex play by design this week so he's on the he's actually this is committed this is pre-committed we're not just trying to rescue a bad pick with saying it was a flex play after the fact this is a by design flex play which means we have five picks involved we've got jared goff going for more than 264 and a half passing yards we've got puka nakua going for more than 78 and a half receiving yards travis kelsey going for more than 61 and a half receiving yards jake elliott going for more than one and a half field goals made and rookie quarterback cj stroud going up against the best defense in the nfl going for more than 256 and a half 
passing yards. So that is Eli's by design flex play, which means if he nails all five of them, he gets 10x his money. If he nails four of them, he gets two times his money. And if he nails three of the five, he gets 0.4 times his money back. Um, so we'll see how that goes for, uh, for old Eli. Anyway, Price Picks is the largest uh, daily fantasy sports platform in North America. The easiest and most exciting way to play DFS is just you and Eli against the numbers. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. Want to play alongside some of Price Picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz? You can find them under the community plays of the Promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the Price Picks community each week. Price Picks even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player that exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. PrizePix is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. So go to prizepix.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepix.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Remember, PrizePix, pick more, pick less. It's that easy. All right, Pete Carroll. Um, this one is interesting because, so again, all of these decisions were uh, ownership prompted, right? They were all like, we're done with you, not you being done with us. The Pete Carroll one is interesting because instead of just firing him, they're shuffling him upstairs. It's like, hey, Pete, we're going to need to get rid of you, but obviously that doesn't look great. So how would you feel with like an emeritus position with inside the building? You know, you could go up and get you a nice corner office. You don't have much to do these days. You know, well, it would be, be nice, you know, and who cares if you don't really have any power anymore? You just, you know, it's all a culture thing, you know? I mean, it's interesting. Like you've seen it, you know, Saban apparently is going to have an office upstairs. So good luck <laughs> to that new coach. Uh, Dude, you got like, how bad Mike must that be? Yeah, I know, I know. Mike Krzyzewski does it at Duke, you know, bless up to, to uh, was it, John Shire there. Uh, I saw John Shire play in high school. Guy went off. Side note. Uh, anyway, like, it, it is interesting. You know, I think, it, you know, oh, with mutual parting of the ways, look, Pete is still has the energy of a 25-year-old. I think he has more energy than me, um, and I'm in my 20s still. But the defense has been bad for a couple years now in Seattle. Like, that, that is the reality of the situation. It, it has not – his side of the ball has not been good. Um it's funny, like I guess, like the anti-Belichick. Like I think the personnel—they've had some good draft classes recently, and the overall team. You know, the transition from Russ to Geno went about as well as it possibly could have. So everything else has been pretty good, although his game management ha- has been spotty in terms of decision making. Um, but in the defense, his actual unit ha- has not been good. So, yeah, it's a fascinating one. You know, I hope he st- sticks around and stays involved and and gives some press conferences because uh, he 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 is a joy. But. I think it makes sense, and obviously, you know, we had all three insiders mention Dan Quinn's name in, in a half a second. Mm. Maybe he comes aboard, um, maybe even retains a Shane Waldron, potentially uh, things of that nature could, could, you know, manifest pretty quickly. But this is the most out-of-pocket tweet of all time from Bamani Jones when he said that uh, Pete Carroll was the, the Farrah Fawcett of the uh, of the day. For people who don't know the reference, you can go go, go Google that. Uh, but anyway, Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, Pete Carroll is also a legend. Whenever you win at both levels, I, I give you a little bit added feather in your cap because college football and the NFL are two totally, totally different environments. And not just win, but like he did build like a, a legitimate 
sort of peak contender at both levels and won everything at both levels, like Super Bowl and, you know, getting USC to as good as they were. Like, those two things, he, he didn't just succeed at both levels. Like, he, he literally got to the summit of the mountain at both levels um, and did it, you know, in a way. Like, he was not, because of the way he had, quote-unquote, failed at the NFL before he went to USC, expectations were not that high when he came back to the NFL and it's like, oh, that, you know, that's an interesting move. And then he turns Seattle into this incredible team, revolutionizes defense. I mean, you know, anytime you literally create the template, like people were replicating that Seahawks defense for the better part of a decade. Um, and it's only just sort of started to go away from that now in the last couple of years. That's a hell of a legacy to, to bring to the table. Um, and, and in addition to the sort of personnel side of it. So, yeah, like Pete Carroll, I think, has been an incredible legacy. I mean, the win rate speaks for itself. The resume speaks for itself. The, the length of time he was doing it for, I think, speaks for itself. Is it kind of weird, though, that like now? Why now? Why, why is this happening now? Yeah, it's a fair question. You know, I think it kind of just provides a clean exit. They miss the playoffs. Maybe if they make it, there's a different situation here, especially if they, you know, maybe get have an upset win in the wild card round. But it seems like a period of transition for this team. Like, they also probably are, you know, I think Gino's still the guy for the short term, but do they maybe draft a guy and, and kind of start working into that transition? Does John Schneider want to have more power and, and, and run the personnel? And and again, like it's kind of the power dynamic is that we keep coming back to because Pete was also, you know, I, I think he had final say over 53. I suppose I could be wrong on that, but that is my understanding of the situation there. Not that Schneider also didn't have a ton of power um, and, and is good at what he does. But yeah, I just think it's it's kind of this new age of the NFL where it'd rather be a year early than a year late. Maybe that was their thinking too. Let him ride off in the sunset. He won the Russell Wilson, you know, debacle, and not yeah. that poor on Russell Wilson flew to Seattle to party with him last night. So that, that was, I thought that was very cool. But um, yeah, like don't let him have the Belichick season. Go, you know, get a third overall pick and and have it kind of be ugly. Um, you know, he's seventy two, but I'm sure he would have been down to keep coaching. But I, like I said, that's why I think it's like a hey, Pete. Like we're gonna the messaging can be mutual, but you're, you're getting fired. But it didn't kind of. That's the strange thing about it is like it this doesn't look like a team that's on its way to falling apart. You know, the, the Belichick Patriots one, I mean, that's been, this has been heading in this direction since Brady left, right? It's been a sort of steady, slow decline, slope down. Eventually it's like, all right, now it's too much. It's, we've, we've got to go. It's not coming back around. It's time to go in a different direction. Um, like the, the Seahawks had a winning record this year. They were again, right on the cusp of the playoffs. They theoretically have found the next quarterback in Geno Smith. Like they're not in this, oh, no, what do we do? We've no quarterback. We're destined to, to collapse. Like, if there was a time for him to, to part ways, it was when they got rid of Russ and they were going to sort of rebuild the thing. They kind of rebuilt it with, with Geno Smith there. The, the rest of the roster isn't in bad shape. They're winning games. I mean, why, you know, it feels a little bit rash to be like, you know, your time is done, old man. See ya. Yeah, I just come back to, you know, the end of the day, his side of the ball, he's coordinating. I mean, their defense second half of the year. You go out, you trade a second and a fifth round pick for an expiring contract on a 29-year-old player who was actually great as a Seahawk. So it's not, I guess, fair. But, like, and the defense is still, and they played a lot of good teams for the second half of the season. But, I mean, they were terrible. I mean, Mason Rudolph was, was, was you know, lighting them up. So, 
you know, not that he's like, you know, he did bring in like Clint Hurt and Sean Desai. Like they've done different things. They're not just playing, you know, like Gus Bradley is still just kind of spamming cover three. Like they're not. They, they've been trying to do new things. But I, that's the only thing I can come back. I agree with you. The only thing I can come back to is he is a defensive coach and their defense failed them this year. Is it, do you think, a reflection on where the division is right now? Like Kyle Shanahan effectively has got Pete Carroll shit canned because that's the standard now. Like you, nine and eight is no good. Nine and eight would be great if we were in the NFC South, but we're not. We're in a division with the 49ers who look like an unstoppable juggernaut right now. And if you can't show me how we're getting to there, you're not the guy. Like I need, I need that. That's the standard now. That is interesting. It's very interesting because he actually, I think, has a great record against McVay. Shanahan does kill him. But, or maybe I have those flipped. Actually, I said it on the podcast and the someone commented that I had, I had it wrong. So I think I have it wrong again. But he's good <laughs> against one of them. He gets killed by the other. Here's my only thing I find that interesting. Like, if Dan Quinn is their target, Dan Quinn also kind of has like a not very ad- – not the most adaptable defense, and the Niners have destroyed the Dallas Cowboys. You know, I know the score in the first two games isn't as bad, but the underlying metrics are not good. I was going to tweet it out, but I felt like it was a little bit unfair. But, like, if you took these Niners' production over the three games where it was the Niners versus Dallas defense, which we would agree is one of the most talented defenses in the NFL, they're, like, 32nd or 30th or 31st in, like, every metric if you, you know, map that to a full season. Again, that is not fair. That's not an appropriate way to do an analysis against the best offense in the league. But, yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. Like, maybe it's also when you go back to whether it be a year earlier than a year late, maybe they're sitting there thinking the quicker we can find our McVay or our Shanahan – because these guys are going to be here for probably a while, like, the better. Because it's not working right now. And we we got to figure something out because look, I think Gannon and what they're building in Arizona is pretty enticing too. Um, obviously, we haven't seen it yet, but I like what they've done. Yeah, the NFC West is an absolute arms race right now. I am fascinated by this like previous legend being moved upstairs and just looming over you from his office. Like, I'm like okay, Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll has that kind of nice guy thing that it might work anyway, but like, dude, can you imagine being the Alabama head coach and Nick Saban just like glaring down at you from his glass office up there, like judging your failure relative to his success? Like the Vikings did this with Bud Grant. Like they they gave him an office in the new facility, but like the last time he coached the team was like 1985 or something. Like he would, you know, he's long since just passed into being sort of nice old team legend that hangs around the place. It's not like, (laughs) <laughs> the dude that built the dynasty is now taking a step back and you get a shot at it. And if you don't measure up to him, he's going to look at you and think you worthless piece of crap. Yeah. Gorgeous office, by the way, in Minnesota. Um, the, uh, the, the Bruce Arians is the most recent example and he's different. Like I was going to bring that up, but it's a little bit different. Cause it's not like he like established some 15 year dynasty right. in Tampa Bay. Like he came over as a mercenary, uh, had an awesome, what, three-year stretch? And, but but he anyway, he is in that role, though. He helps some personnel. Yeah. Obviously, you know, he kind of had the Todd Bowles succession plan. I don't think it was contractually. Right. I think he kind of gained the system a little bit. Um, but, but yeah, so like, no, you're right, though. It, but that, it, it creates an interesting dynamic. Because that's like, where it's different. Pete with... Carroll, it's going to be a – those guys, they're not capable of keeping of not saying <laughs> yeah. something or like what – like it's not in their DNA. It's why, they, it's why they're great, but it also probably will – like I think the Krzyzewski one, I know it's a football podcast, but I think that one's hilarious. Like, <laughs> But that's where the, the Arians one – you're right. It's, it's different in a couple of ways. Number one, 
I mean, he didn't have this like decades long tenure as the legend of that franchise. And number two, he kind of picked his successor. So it's like, I'm here as a, you know, I'm here as your mentor. I'm still in the building. I'm good. You need anything? Just give me a call. I'm, I'm upstairs. You know, that is a lot different to like, you know, just a guy sitting there in judgment over his successor. It just feels so much weirder. Um, all right, let's wrap up before the boo-boo breakdown with a bit of breaking news. Um, Adam Schefter tweeted that the season's first general manager hire has been made. The Washington Commanders are hiring 49ers assistant GM Adam Peters as their general manager, sources tell ESPN. Um, this one, I think, is really fascinating because Washington, I think, by a lot of measures is the best job available like the most attractive job and before you have hired the head coach or even really interviewed people you've kind of taken off the table one one potential element of wooing a guy right like if you were into Bill Belichick that's probably off the table now simply because half his job description just got given to Adam Peters Interesting. So I'll tell you this. I think we talked about it on this show. I've been told that this is the most attractive opening uh, in the entire cycle for, you know, I guess GM or head coach, five top 100 picks, ton of cap space, some good talent there to work with. Now, you know, for a fact, you're getting Caleb Williams or Drake May at two. Um, Peters is a guy where he was basically turning down interviews and, and it got to the point where I'm going to take the job that I want when it gets to that point. Like, like I'm going to dictate the situation. If it's an attractive enough opening, then I will go do it. And so I think that says a ton about how you know attractive this job is. That Peters said, this is the one that I'm going to go take. It's a new era there. I do hear you. I'm a big believer in GM first and then go coach. I know it's different building to building. They also moved at warp speed. I mean, I don't think any other building is even close right. to making a hire. Um, and they've already got one down. The rumor that I've been hearing is Ben Johnson. Uh, obviously, we won't know until after the playoffs, but that he is going to be the head coach to pair with Adam Peters. Obviously, that would be the biggest slam dunk offseason that any team will have. But yeah, Peters comes from a building where, first of all, the Niners don't get enough credit for... Obviously, John Lynch is a football guy, quote-unquote, but there's a ton of power with Parag Marate, who kind of runs the entire Jed York Enterprises. Brian Hampton is their football administration guy, but also does analytics work. Like, they're... This is an org that is, you know, it doesn't get talked about like a Baltimore or Philadelphia, whatever, but has a, a nucleus of very smart people that does a lot of different things and different projects. Eugene Shen is already in Washington. You bring in Adam Peters to be your quote unquote football guy. I think they'll still probably continue to make more moves. I think it's interesting. Maybe Martin Mayhew, who worked with Peters in San Fran, maybe now he stays on. He was the former GM in a different role, different capacity. But I think that the main point I'm making here is like, I don't think any one hire is the point. I think they want to change the structure and dynamic of this building and run it differently and be a new age, you know, new age group. That's why you bring in a Bob Myers, you know, the, the Golden State Warriors GM to be part of the search committee. This is going to be unorthodox. But yeah, the two the two finalists, him and Cunningham, are, are held in extremely high regard. Um, and I think this is a, a, a great first step for Washington. Um, are you of the opinion generally that the idea of one person having control over the coaching and the personnel thing is just a bad idea structurally, right? Like the idea should be general manager does one thing, head coach does the other thing. They work in tandem. Like you want them to have a good working relationship, but one guy should not control all of that. It's my belief. And it's funny because, I mean, Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, Andy Reid, right. that's not how they're structured. So there's obviously evidence it works otherwise. But I think in today's NFL – with all the responsibilities that go into this, with 
all the things you need to do and, and the inability to get away with not attacking those edge cases, I think it, it has to be the way you go forward. So, yeah, I am a believer that the coach should have heavy influence on personnel, but the final say in the 53, which is contractually written into deals, um, should fall with a general manager, not a head coach. And it does create this interesting sort of uh, Sophie's choice almost now for some of these new owners where, okay, I'm, I'm a brand new owner. I bought the team. I want to do the right thing. We think the right thing is what you just described. It's a general manager has final say, and then we get a head coach and they work in tandem. On the other hand, some of the biggest names out there want the other thing. And some of them have proven track records of being pretty good at the other thing. So do I like voluntarily essentially remove the team from the chance of getting one of those guys to do what I think is the right thing? Or do I say, no, the most important thing is getting, you know, Bill Belichick to run my organization. Like getting the greatest coach of all time in the building is the best thing I can do. Like it's a tough call for a guy like Josh Harris who, okay, he's got experience with with teams and other sports, but like this is a huge, like fundamental direction of the franchise decision that he's making from a philosophical point of view. And apparently is like really early on been like, nope, that's the way we're going. No, it's super interesting because also we're talking about Peters. I mean, Kyle Shanahan, everyone knows, has a ton of say. I don't know if he has, again, contractually, if he does have 53 power. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. Real quick, looking at the list of interviews they've requested, and I hope I didn't miss any. Maybe I did. But so Mike McDonald in Baltimore, you know, guy that's been in the college ranks, been in Baltimore before. I don't know what his opinions are on personnel. Dan Quinn, I think we know from Atlanta that Thomas Dimitrov had the final say on 53, so he's open to that. Bobby Slowick, I, I doubt, really is super involved in personnel. I think he'd be open to it. Ben Johnson, pretty new coach. We know that Brad Holmes runs personnel in, in Detroit. Aaron Glenn, same thing, Detroit, but also New Orleans. Peyton did have say, but I, I, I do think Mickey Loomis and those guys also had a ton of power. Uh, Raheem Morris in L.A., Les Snead runs the personnel, even though McVay has a lot of influence. And then Anthony Weaver is the Ravens' defensive line coach. So, yeah, you know, it, it is interesting. But DaCosta in Baltimore, you know, again, Harbaugh's involved, but Eric DaCosta right. has final say. So maybe their, their candidate list, maybe like you're saying, they kind of already did shrink it down to these are guys that we know are not asking for pers- or for final say. So is Belichick not a candidate? Is John Harbaugh not a candidate? Are, are those guys just effectively off the list? And is that a good thing? It's a fair question. Jim Harbaugh, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like I, I, do, I do wonder then if it limits those types of candidates to like to almost bad jobs (laughs) you know what I mean like the only people willing to give them that control are the people that sort of acknowledge that they are going to do things the wrong way and are cool with that but think it's worth it or people that are in the minority I guess of thinking that that's the right way of doing it like I think there's a growing and or or general consensus right now that the correct structure is the one you've articulated. GM does the personnel, head coach does the coaching, and they work in tandem and it functions. I think the number of people that believe one guy should be doing that is pretty small at this point. But two or three of the biggest head coaching candidates in the pool right now all want that. So are we now sort of looking at this and saying, well, if Belichick or Jim Harbaugh or whoever, if they want that, they are essentially limiting themselves to probably bad organizations that are willing to give them the thing that they think is not the right way of doing it just because it's Belichick or Harbaugh. 
And that's where I think the Raiders become fascinating. I, I, I believe that Gruden had that in Las Vegas. Right. Uh, McDaniel's probably to a degree. I know Ziegler's his buddy, so maybe they didn't. But it sounds like um, he it's did. entirely possible. He, yeah, yeah. So, and then the Chargers too, which everyone's kind of talking about Harbaugh and Chargers. You know, uh, Telesco for sure had had power there over Brandon Staley. Maybe they think that didn't go particularly well, so they're open to different different structures, different ideas. But no, I think in both directions, like you're saying, I think it does limit pools. Um, Because I now do think there are organizations that say this is the structure we want, and if you're resistant to that, then then maybe you're just not a fit for what we're trying to accomplish here. And it's fascinating to me because I I think for Belichick in particular, I mean, who knows? He might not want to keep coaching at all. He might want to retire and just chill on his boat or whatever. But if Bill Belichick wants to keep coaching, and the most important thing from his perspective is, I now need a good stint somewhere to repair my legacy, you know? I would imagine even he is looking at this and going, it's pretty difficult to escape the growing sense of opinion that Tom Brady did this, not me. So if I want to go down as the greatest coach of all time and, you know, have this legacy is as I need to go somewhere and have a minimum a few good years, you know, make the playoffs a few times somewhere that hasn't been there or whatever and show, show good. So he's gotta be looking like, which team can I get to the playoffs in the next couple of years Washington, to me, would have been a great situation. It's not a bad roster. They've got a lot in place and, as you said, have a shot at one of the top two quarterbacks in the draft. And yet, Washington isn't going to give him what he wants, like personnel control. Um, Alternatively, you're like looking at Carolina. You're like, can I get this team to the playoffs in the next two, three years? I don't know. Um, Or, you know, one of these other, like, can I get the Raiders to the playoffs in the next couple of years, given their situation? It's it's a tough dynamic for guys like Belichick for Harbaugh if he wants to jump back in the NFL and go win a championship somewhere there. Like they are looking at this and almost sort of pre-selecting themselves down to organizations that are willing to concede a kind of worse organizational structure just to accommodate them. I think it's almost a sort of self-defeating uh, requirement to what they want. Yeah, no, I do wonder. I doubt Harbaugh is going to relent at all. I think he feels that he's qualified to do it. I, you know, also there was reports him and Bal- him and Trent Baalke did not see eye to eye in San Fran. Which makes sense. And, and I think if you look at their draft history, kind of like we joked about uh, Mike Vrabel in Tennessee, I think Harbaugh would say I probably should have had more power here too. Yeah. Um, with Belichick, he I think he was asked and kind of said like if that's what needs to be done, like maybe I'll be open to it. And I think Atlanta makes a lot of sense for him. Um, there's so many tentacles we could go here. I, I think. Ryan Nielsen's a really good defensive coordinator, and I'd probably try to keep him on board if I am Atlanta. So there's another element of, like, are you going to for- try to force a D coordinator on Belichick? Is he not going to be open to that? Is that a deal-breaker for either party? There- there's so many tentacles to it. But, yeah, I-, I don't think he wants to go somewhere he has to rebuild. Um, Atlanta does have a quarterback, but they have a lot otherwise. Um, good defense, offensive pieces, and the eighth overall pick, maybe you get the third quarterback off the board. But no, it's it, that is you know the, the the new way we approach building these teams out. I think we forget sometimes that like we're not very far removed from if you had the better talent and if you had a good coach, you could get away with a lot of other little things. But now in today's NFL, you can't. Like all the little edge cases add up um, and have just fundamentally changed how you how you can sustain a, a successful team in this league. All right, that's going to do it for the uh, the coaching roundup. Now we're going to head over to the boo boo breakdown. 
All right, our guy Vic Troa here for the Boo Boo Breakdown, the first playoff edition of the Boo Boo Breakdown. And boy, are there a lot of injured players that we need to mm -hmm. talk about. Um, let's start with somebody who isn't going to be playing first. TJ Watt had that knee injury at the end of the, the last game. I think he's already been ruled out. They're going to be without him. Uh, what is he dealing with and how likely is he to come back if they make it through this weekend? Yeah, so the, the thing with TJ Watt is um, it really actually looked bad at the yeah. beginning. And um, I was kind of feeling like it could have been more than what was just diagnosed as an MCL sprain. And now as we're reading into it a little bit more, it's a grade three MCL sprain, which is pretty much next level to a grade four really significant damage. Uh, when I initially saw the video, I pretty much ruled him out this week. Now reading into it a little bit more, I think he's going to struggle to come back even for next playoff run if they win. Right. Um, his issue uh, compared to like other MCL sprains, and I'm sure that we'll discuss a little bit with AJ Brown later, but his issue is with the MCL, it's the inside of your knee. And think about how much bend DNs do and how much pressure they put on the lateral aspects of their knee and the force that is driven through there. Uh, so he's not only going to be set back just because of the grade of the sprain, but he's also going to be set back because of the demands of the position that he plays. And unfortunately, it was just, you know, suicide by his own teammate kind of falling right. into him. And it doesn't look like he's going to be able to return at least for another week plus. I mean, aside from the actual injury itself, with that kind of, you know, running the hoop type of thing that TJ Watt excels at, is he at risk of tearing it completely if he goes out there and tries to give it a go at less than 100%? Yeah, I would say so. Um, normally, you wouldn't say if it was like a really mild grade, but given where it's at, um, it kind of brings you back to when way back when when RG3 was playing on an unstable knee and you knew it was just a matter of time. And in that playoff game, they wanted to push him through and there goes his knee. It's that type of situation where not only does he have a little bit lack of stability, but everything around that knee right now is more in protection mode than they are performance mode. So if he really pushed it and tried to get too aggressive with it, he'd be at risk for further injury. Um, the Lions lost Sam Laporta yeah. in that final uh, meaningless, I, in, in inverted commas, playoff or final week uh, 18 game. He the, the diagnosis was the exact same as the Travis Kelsey injury preseason, right? Mm -hmm. It was a bone bruise and a hyperextension and a sprain, et cetera. It was basically the same injury. So mm -hmm. are we looking at the same uh, prognosis for him in terms of, you know, borderline whether he comes back? And even if he does, he's probably not going to look the same. Yeah. I mean, Sam, that's definitely a good comp, the Travis Kelsey injury to this. Uh, when you look at a hyperextension, there's um, part of the knee that has evolved for him is called the PLC, so you probably have heard the PCL, mm. which is a ligament. The PLC stands for posterior lateral corner, and that's basically just the back part of the knee that got so much pressure when it hyperextended, therefore causing the bone bruise and the swelling. And then you also have some like LCL damage, which is the outside of the knee. Um, but that's just mild, like grade one type issues. The, the problem is like, is his swelling going to be under control? Is he going to be able to tolerate the pressure that when he's going to be demanded to sprint, cut, all of that? Is he going to be able to tolerate that with the pain that he's having? Um, I was surprised. Obviously, Coach Talk comes out and Coach Campbell says, you know, um, you know, it's a question mark if he's even going to play this week, but we're still not ruling him out. But then Sam Laporta comes out and he says that he's optimistic that he'll play. 
And when a player comes out and says they're optimistic, means that they've actually been probably trying to do some stuff with it and feel pretty good. So I would be um, really interested to see if, if he gets through um, today and gets through warmups and stuff like that without pain. If he comes out, I mean, that's a great turnaround. Uh, if not, and they win, he'll be back next week. How important is it that he's a rookie in his early 20s versus Travis Kelsey, who's, you know, towards the end of his career in his in his mid to late 30s, like with effectively the same injury, how much does the timetable change just because Laporta is that young? Yeah, well, we put the research number as about like 25 years old. So when I look at a uh, 25-year-old versus uh, late 30, it's going to be a difference. Now, I do think the one thing to consider with Laporta too is when you also time that up with the fact that he's pretty much been injury free this year. He's not dealing with a ton of other knee issues like accumulating to this. Uh, it's gonna be a little bit quicker recovery rather than somebody who's just, okay, I've been struggling with knee issues on and off all year and then this started to happen. So I do think his recovery could be a little bit faster than what Kelsey's was, but granted Kelsey was pretty fast in itself. So Yeah, Kelsey missed that first week, yep. ends up playing week two, and didn't quite look like Travis Kelsey until sort of week three. <laughs> right. Um, we then, covered that too, and, and we watched that game, and just, you know, you could tell yeah. he was struggling to get off the line. He actually, um, you know, we, we even discussed how his his role in that offense is so much of him, like, finding open spots and settling, so he could do that fine. But, like, the demands of everything else, you could see affect him. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see that if Laporta plays this week. It's just kind of expedited one, one week compared to Kelsey. Um, okay, the Philadelphia Eagles, Yeah, everybody's hurt. Mm -hmm. um, pretty much everybody on offense is dealing with something. Let's start with Jalen Hurts because, I mean, I would say that's the most significant injury simply because it's to the quarterback. He dislocated his middle finger on his throwing hand, um, and they presumably just popped it back in on the sideline, sent him back into the game before eventually bailing on the game, taking everybody out. Yep. Uh, he apparently hasn't thrown a football yet, and that doesn't sound good. Yeah, it's, that's not good. Uh, the worry here is that if he's not really training that finger to see how he's going to adjust his mechanics of throwing, uh, when he starts to throw more, you wonder how much control he's going to have on that ball. Do I think that Jalen Hurts is going to play? Yes. Do I think that this is going to impact him? I do. Uh, when you have the dislocation that he had, um, it's called a swan neck deformity, which basically means that the, the structural ligaments that kind of are the guide wires that keep his finger in place, they slipped with that dislocation. So there is soft tissue damage there. This is different than what we saw with Justin Herbert earlier this year with a fracture. Right. Um, this is There's no fracture, but there's soft tissue damage. And not to get into too much detail, but to break down Jalen Hurts, he is a very um, index finger dominant thrower. So he does a lot of gripping with his index finger and not as much with his middle finger. And you can kind of tell that by the ball placement when he holds the football. And so that is in his favor, but at the same time, he does utilize that finger. And if that is not able to clamp down that hard, I mean, everything from the tush push to the catching snaps to throwing the ball, that might be affected if he hasn't been able to get range of motion and decrease that pain. So it's, I mean, is presumably it's less of a pain thing and more of a, a strength thing, right? When you've jacked up your finger and soft tissue damage, ligament damage, whatever, it's, you don't have the strength 
the grip strength anymore on that finger that you used it. Yeah, it's definitely going to be inhibited. And there's still going to be some swelling in that joint. So being able to wrap your finger around the ball, it's not going to do that as much. It's going to be limited in the range of motion. And, you know, like you said, he hasn't thrown a ball yet. So this, he has to train his body with these new hand mechanics right. if he's not able to do that. And even simply just the fact that it's different is going to be something that is going to be very difficult to like readjust on the fly, even in the space of a few days. I mean, right. he's going to be throwing with a hand that doesn't behave the way it normally behaves. And just introducing anything new to something that you take for granted, presumably, is going to make it worse. You yep, know? Absolutely. And he has to deal with that going into a playoff game, which just can't help. Yeah. Um, and making matters worse, his best receiver, A.J. Brown, got injured his knee in that game as well. And yep. things, have been, things seem to have been very quiet on the A.J. Brown front throughout yep. the entire week. Now, they kind of saw him after the game, and he, was, he looked okay, mm -hmm. but there's been, like, no, no information on A.J. Brown. Yeah, so uh, I had to go and rewatch that, that video when he kind of got rolled up on and being tackled, and he has a right knee MCL sprain. Um, this is less significant than what we just talked about with TJ Watt. It's just not, not as severe. And uh, given that he's like, you know, he, he, he's a veteran, he probably can work around some of the, the adjustments in his routes and his knee pain a little bit. I do see him playing. I'm surprised to say that, but I do see him playing. I think it's going to really impact him on things like cutting, though. Like, I, I think if you really dive into to him playing this week, if he does suit up, watch when he's cutting just see if he's able to really plant off that right leg and burst out of it straight line speed i don't think he's gonna have a problem uh you know he'll obviously get through some adrenaline rushes when the ball's in the air and be able to jump and stuff like that but when he's actually route running and putting a lot of demand on that knee i'm interested to see if it affects his speed the last guy i want to talk about um tyler smith the second year guard for the dallas cowboys so he had uh, a plantar fasciitis injury right mm -hmm. now that's one of those injuries that it's one of those sort of big scary words that throughout sort of injury history has always been a really big red flag one when i saw that he did that initially i was like oh that's he's just done for the year that's yeah. it no more and now he might play in this playoff game how what's what's going on how unusual is that for a start and if he does come back and he's able to get through is he just is he automatically going to be a much worse player because he's dealing with this yeah, I heard you um, bring it up in the, this week's preview, and let's just say it this way. Uh, plantar fasciitis is inflammation. A plantar fascia tear is the tear not necessarily associated with inflammation of the foot. It is being managed right now by shots and wrapping and because it's one of those things that doesn't go away like until it's you Correct. know addressed with time and rest and potentially being fixed like right. it's not something he's not good to go now he's just like okay it's playoff time i need to play yep he will be on the injury report every single week for as long as they can make their run that being said i do think that he has he has been able to have proper care and manage through this where he's going to probably feel limited in things like where we can really plant off that foot and everything but it's not something that like is to the significance of where he can't play right now and that's a good sign when you sometimes get these plantar fascia tears and it's very significant it's just that you're shut down uh, if he's able to manage and i'm sure on his medical team that they have really checked this out and made sure like hey you're not making things worse so like off season you're going to be shut down with a major injury or anything 
It's just that you, he is going to be limited. And so watch that foot when he steps back. And as he's engaging in a block, if that foot's on the backside and he's planting into it, that's when you're going to see the most stress put on it. And that's where I'm worried that he's going to get beat. Because if he can't drive off that foot when he's getting pressure into him, uh, it's going to be really hard for that, you know, him to stay on an engaged block if he has no drive. I mean, is this something that could kind of re-aggravate and put him out of the game at some point? Like he gets, you know, he tries to anchor against Kenny Clark, right? Kenny Clark's going to bull rush the guy. He puts his foot in the, in the turf, tries to anchor, and his foot just says, not a chance, yep. right? I'm not, I, I, was, I wasn't happy with 330 <laughs> pounds. I'm certainly not happy with 630. Forget about yeah. it. <laughs> um, and he ends up leaving the game having given it a shot. Yeah, I, I would say that if I saw him leave the game, like if he, you know, if Clark's bull rushing him and he's pushed back and then, you know, he does one of those like hobbles and, and right. jumps on his foot and he's out for the game, I would not be surprised if I saw that. Right. Is it going to happen? You can't really tell. I think that they're definitely going to have that wrapped. They're going to give him as much security on his foot. I don't. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they just spat up his whole ankle and just give him as much security there as possible. Is there anything you can do now in terms of like reinforcing that? I mean, I sort of think in terms of, you know, all these like athletic running shoes that now have like carbon fiber, like spines, like almost like a cuttlefish, you know, sort of bone thing that yeah. goes in them and like add spring to your step like can you effectively stick something in your foot like that that takes the takes the brunt of the force well i would say that the the one thing that they're not going to do is they're probably not going to change anything within his shoe that he hasn't been playing with because of the sensitivity he has on the bottom of his foot like whatever he's used to and whatever he can get through they're going to keep where where we actually have addressed this earlier in the year is they're probably going to secure it through tape right because that is in itself a springboard but it's also the security that he needs i i think that's more likely than them like altering his shoe uh, I, I mean they're just in a tough spot because if 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 he can play he's he's all pro caliber mm. he's, he's gonna be out there he might not be at 100 percent, but he's probably giving them the best chance at 85 percent. right so they're gonna put him out there and if that re-aggravates the injury and he's done i think it's worth the risk on their end because you're in the playoffs this yeah. is not week one or two but it does feel inevitable that like it's definitely going to hamper him i mean for a guy who relies on strength power you know drive all that kind of thing as soon i mean you immediately introduce an injury to the guy's foot it's like i mean i can't not affect him Oh, absolutely. And anybody that who's, you know, listening is that has ever dealt with plantar fascia issues. I mean, it's hard enough to get out of bed and take those first few steps. Now imagine going snap after snap after snap, driving off that foot. It's going to hamper his ability, but he might, you know, given that he's, he's been getting injections and given the fact that like he has been able to manage this therapeutically, I don't see it being something where like um, he's going to be a game time decision. If he's ready to go, he's going, and we're just going to see how he plays. All right. Any other big names you want to hit before we wrap it up? No, I just think, you know, this is going to be an interesting time when you look at injuries as they enter in the playoffs. You're going to see players that just push through, and I find it fascinating to watch them on the field on how they perform. People like Jalen Waddle with ankle injuries. Um, all, uh, you know, Stefan Gilmore might come out and play even though he subluct his shoulder. Like, you're going to see guys that would probably not push it back that are going to be on the field because they're giving their team the best opportunity to win but at the same time just watch out for them like see if they're exposed see if that they get re-injured um, or if like they're just play drops down a level or two yeah I mean remember like for just how crazy NFL players were Ronnie Lott once amputated a 
chunk of his finger to play in the playoffs. So if you're at all on the fence about whether these guys are going to give it a shot now that it's the playoff time, they are going to give it a a go, even if they shouldn't. Even if it's medically advised very much not to do this, they're going to give it a shot if they're cleared to. (laughs) That's so so true. All right, that's our uh, first playoff boo-boo breakdown done in the books uh, and the week of the PFF NFL podcast in the books. So thank you all for listening. Myself and Steve will be back on Monday.